Hi, everybody. It's been about four weeks that I haven't done a, a hosted a guest because I've been traveling a lot, started the new semester. But boy, do I have a good one to kick off the fall semester. Sage Steele, how are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. This is this is kind of cool that you asked. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to have you. Let me just uh, read some of your key biometrics. And as we were talking offline, father time catches up to you. So I actually <laughs> have to wear the old man glasses. You were at ESPN for... 16 years from 2007 to 2023, you were a broadcaster and a lead anchor. You were host of Sports Center, the network's flagship show. You've hosted many leading national and international events, including the Super Bowl, the Masters, the NBA Finals, the World Series, but not only sports, the Scripps National Spelling Bee. That's kind of cool. And the Miss America pageant. Did I cover some of the key highlights or do you want to add anything before we get going? That is plenty, but I love the spelling bee love there because honestly, that was one of the coolest events I've ever covered. And they're like, it's not a sport. I'm like, no, but it's a competition. It's a good competition. So maybe we could start with how did you decide, you know, we're going to get into your story with ESPN, but how did you first decide sports casting is what I want to do? I want to go to Indiana University and pursue that. And I asked this because you may or may not know this. I have a sports broadcasting superstar in my own family maybe you know have you heard of Ariel Helwani no way I know Ariel you know Ariel well Ariel is my maternal nephew no so, way I so, love him tell him from, hi he from a, be watching I will from a very young age he always said he loved wrestling he loved all these con and he actually pursued his passion and turned it into a profession do you have a similar story Yes, but my goodness, I haven't seen Ariel in a long time. Give him a hug for me. Uh, I was sports obsessed from a very young age. I have a father who played college football at an army at West Point. Um, and I brag because he did so in historical fashion. He 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 broke the color barrier. He's the first black man ever to play varsity football at West Point back in like 1966. So um, some history there. And he was actually a pretty damn good athlete as well. And um, so dad kind of started it. And then I have two younger brothers. Honestly, I knew at a really young age um, the power of sports. And I, I, I can say that now. Uh, but even talking to my parents about when I announced to them when I was 11 years old at the dinner table that I wanted to be a sportscaster, I knew it wasn't I wasn't going to be a great athlete. I thought the second best thing would be to talk about it and to tell people stories. And even at that young age, I remember watching the 84 Olympics and going, I want to I want to understand how these athletes are not just good, but great at the ultimate moment when the entire world is, is watching with one chance to run that hundred meter dash, right? I was just in awe of kind of the mental toughness to go along with the physical gifts and talents. Um, and it wanted to tell stories from a really young age. And did your, I mean, did your parents do the stereotypical thing of being disappointed that you're not becoming a physician or a corporate lawyer or were they no. the type, oh, you found your passion. Let's go with it. They knew that the what you mentioned there, a physician or a corporate lawyer, that was not ever going to be in the cards for me. <laughs> I think they like to think that, oh, she has other things she's good at. Uh, what they did say was, really? Because I was so shy. I was painfully shy. And I this sounds weird, but I like I didn't talk to many people besides people in my family. I had a couple of friends, but I was super, super shy. And they're like, okay, well, this is a good dream. And if you want to be on television, then you're probably going to have to talk a little more. So it was really from day one, like the, if this is your dream and let's talk about why, but if it's your dream, um, 
then you're going to have to come out of your shell. You're going to have to get comfortable being uncomfortable, basically, which is a line that Nick Saban taught me a few years ago. And I use it with my kids too. So from a young age, I had to learn to get out of that comfort zone if I wanted to uh, pursue this dream. And sometimes I admit, I look, even when I was on ESPN and I was like, how, how did this actually happen? But I had to kind of, you know, make that decision to be uncomfortable. What was, what were some of the mechanisms that you used to overcome your shyness? It was, you know, being forced by my parents. Um, sometimes it was as simple as we had some neighbor girls in this neighborhood we had moved into in Colorado Springs. And, you know, they had their group and their clique and they didn't need a new kid. And so my parents were like, okay, do you want friends? Well, then you have to go make that happen. Go knock on her door, see if she wants to play, see if she wants to ride bikes. I remember that. Um, also, I was actually, we lived in Belgium. My dad was in the military for 23 years. And one of his, the many places we lived was in Belgium. And while there, um, my mom actually talked to some doctors about trying to help kids overcome shyness. And one thing these doctors suggested was to bring me around horses. And so I got into the equestrian sport, the beautiful equestrian sport, which by the way, we had no business doing it with on, on an army salary. That's the wrong business to try to, you know, wrong salary to try to be successful in that business uh, and that sport. But for me, it wasn't about that. My parents somehow sacrificed. My mom got a second job to help pay for me to ride because horses are very therapeutic. And what it did was it, it made me as an 11 year old kid, because I started right away after I announced this dream. Um, in hindsight, it makes you feel needed that this animal needs you to stay alive. And so it gave me this confidence that I was needed. And I, it's not like I felt unneeded through at home or with my family. It was just different. And it gave me that confidence um, to, to try new things, to walk into the barn. And we had very strict uh, British instructors and they were adamant about certain things. And I had to stand tall and I had to speak up for myself if I wanted to be around the horses. So who knew? You know, I now know how therapeutic and helpful animals can be. You, you know, it's 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 very, I don't know if the right word would be soothing, but it's actually motivating to hear someone who was so public that, that you faced some of those difficulties because oftentimes people think that high profile people, you know, don't get nervous, don't oh. suffer from anxiety, right? And so I'll tell you a couple of stories that I think, you know, will resonate well with with, with the story that you just shared. So I had a, uh, a personal friend who's a physician to, you know, high profile athletes. I had him on my show a few years ago. And uh, as we were chatting, I said, can I take a guess as to what is the number one ailment that these high profile athletes come and see you about? What What is it? And he goes, so he was kind of quizzical. He didn't know why I would be able to guess that. And he goes, sure, go ahead. I said, anxiety disorders. And he said, exactly. So, you know, you, you mythologize the athletes as you, you did in the 1984, you know, the, the 100 meter, you know, gladiator sprinter, you think that they are impervious to some of these very human frailties. But if anything, what makes them champions is that they face the exact same anxieties that the rest of us face, but then they somehow overcome them. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And, and I think people ask me that all the time as well. Like, do you get nervous? And the answer is um, yes, but I know how to handle it now right. and I know where to channel it. And I actually think that adrenaline rush that I get right before I go on air or do an important show like yours, you know, it's, it's excitement. And um, what I find though, is about a minute or two before I go on the air, 
I get really calm. Like I'll have a tough hour or so leading up to it because when I was on ESPN, it's, it's, I mean, you're live and it's across the country every single day. And I did two hours live every day, but, um, we did all the writing, you know, researchers helped us with a lot of things and producers, but everything that we really said on camera and back and forth interviewing other athletes or analysts, we wrote that. So I was able to, to realize, to remind myself when I would get tight and anxious, wait, you're prepared. You're ready for this because you did the work. No one wrote the stuff for me. Those were my words. And therefore you could make it conversational and, and take away the pressure of having to say things exactly perfectly. But it it has taken many years. I don't want to lose that though. And I'm sure a lot of the athletes have said that to you as well, right? If if we lose that adrenaline, then we lose our edge exactly. and you lose your ability to to come out and perform and be your best. So now I know that I thrive on it. I just look back and laugh a little bit about that, that kid who was scared of her own shadow. And I'll say this too, because you'll appreciate it, especially early on in my career. I've always talked too fast. All my bosses have yelled at me for it. And I slowed down here and there, but at the end of the day, they gave up and they realized it's just, it's just me and kind of who I am. Um, but in order to not get sick to my stomach with nerves and anxiety at the beginning stages of my career, what I would do is when I'd look in the camera lens, like I am now, I would picture my dad. Wow. Like I was on the couch having a football conversation like I did when I was 12 years old on a football Sunday with my dad so that you're telling a story. You're not giving a report or you're not conducting an interview. You're having a conversation, you're telling a story. And that allowed me to let go of the nerves and to really be me on camera. That's beautiful. I want to come uh, back to your, your, what seems to be a very powerful bond that you have with your dad. I want to come back to that and share some of my own bond with my own daughter in a second. But just to kind of close the, the the parenthesis on you know anxiety and stress, I had about I think it was about five years ago I had the lead singer of the Stylistics. I don't know if you know who do, do you know the Stylistics? Are you familiar with that group? No. No, the Stylistics were part of a genre of music called the Philly Sound, which was a, a type of soul music from the late yeah. 60s, early 70s. This kind of very romantic, haunting music, and and there are several groups that fit that genre: the Stylistics, the Delphonics, the Moments. Well, yeah. I grew up as a young kid with this guy Russell Tompkins Jr. singing in my ear as a child, even before I knew how to speak English. I mean, I grew up in Lebanon, and to you know, four decades later, to be having him on my show just seemed like completely impossible. How could it be that our worlds would ever intersect? He's about twenty years older than me. But in any case, the reason why I'm telling you the story, Sage, is because here's this, you know, world-renowned soul singer. You would think he's got it together. You would think that there's absolutely no reason for him to ever experience any, you know, jitters before going on. And I asked him on the show, I said, do you get nervous before going on? And I was praying and hoping that he would say an emphatic yes, because then I would use that answer to motivate my students when they're deathly afraid to do their oral presentation. Right. I say, look, hey, if Russell Tompkins Jr., the legendary soul singer, can get nervous, it's okay for you too. And his answer was, oh, I can hardly stand up. I feel like my legs are going to buckle. Oh my gosh. But what does he have to be logically, rationally? Thousands of people have paid to come and listen to you sing. You clearly know how to sing, and yet you're you're scared. And when I tell that story to my students, I see kind of the weight coming off them. Because if Lionel Messi or Michael Jordan or this singer can get nervous, we we all can get nervous. Yes, I I I love that he was honest too, because I think sometimes 
you know, when, when people are being asked certain questions, they're like, no, 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 or they minimize it. One thing I've found in the last couple of years through some adversity per personally and professionally is the more people open up and share and are honest, I mean, not only is it helpful for other people, like you're saying to your students to realize, yeah, even people at this level of whatever industry, they get nervous. It's almost therapeutic. It's been therapeutic for me to be able to share it and then to continue to push through it. So the vulnerability and then talking about those things and those, I don't even want to characterize it as a weakness when we get nervous or anxiety. No, I, I view it now. Uh, I've taken it at least and used it as a strength because I know that I can make it come out with the energy that I'm using. And it's all genuine, you know, but I love that he was vulnerable and honest with you. He didn't have to be, you um, know, I, more I, people I, do that. I think it's a win for everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I faced a, a similar sort of bifurcation in, in deciding whether I wanted to share a personal story or not. A few years ago, out of the blue, I had what felt like, oh my God, am I am I having a heart attack? Am I having? And we were, I, I was driving with my wife and kids. I was not in any way consciously, you know, stressed. I wasn't ruminating over anything, and I started getting this tightness of breathing. My fingers started tingling, and so we stopped on the side. And I said to my wife, "I think you have to drive me to the emergency room. I don't know what's happening to me." So. She drives me to the emergency room. Uh, it turned out to be a panic attack, which was the first one and the only one that I've ever had. I tend to be reason. I mean, I'm an intense person, but I'm quite chill. I don't know exactly what triggered it. But to, to our conversation, I was trying to decide, should I share this or does it go contrary to my being the happy warrior, the honey badger. And then I thought, but that would be inauthentic if I don't share that. Yeah. I also talk about the the importance of authenticity. And so I went on the biggest possible platform in the world, Joe Rogan, and I yeah. shared that panic story. And then tons of people wrote to me and said, you don't know how much solace it gave me to, that you shared that. So you're exactly right. It takes a lot of courage to actually show vulnerability and weakness. And I think it goes back even further to uh, letting go of caring what everybody else thinks too. That's why people tend to not, and I'm, listen, I don't have the background you do certainly, um, but just through my own experiences, you know, like once, once you let go of caring what everybody thinks, um, then you're more able to be vulnerable and to share those things. And every time I have yeah, the, the feedback I've gotten has been completely overwhelming. That's brought me to tears at times when people have said, you know, thank you for sharing this. Thank you for standing up and being uncomfortable. And it is scary, but then you realize every single time you you push through that fear of, of sharing something, for instance, then the next time it gets a little bit easier. And I just, I, I feel fortunate to have realized it later than I would have liked. I try to tell this to my kids now, no, be open, say whatever you want and be yourselves and don't wait so long. And that's that's the biggest thing too, right? Is that if we continue to do this and share on the biggest platforms, like, like you said with what you did with Joe Rogan, others are going to hopefully be better than us. And that's what we want at, for the younger generation. Indeed, I, I wanna get into all the ESPN stuff and the woke stuff and freedom of speech and all that in a second. But since we touched on the thread of your dad, before I ask you the question, so I I listened to your chat with uh, Megan Kelly. That's how I really became familiar with with your story. And I said, oh, I, I have to reach out to this lady. She seems fantastic. Uh, and one thing that came out 
you know, very clearly is the incredible love you have for your parents, your family, but there seems to be this really incredible reverence and love. I mean, I'm sure for your mom too, but specifically to your dad, maybe you could tell us about that. And then I'll share some of my bonds with my own children as a, as a backup to your story. Yeah. I would, I would love to hear that with you and your kids. And, um, I, I talked my, you heard me right before we started to record, right? My mom called and like, hi mom. And I'm, listen, I'm almost 51 years old. I talk to my parents at least twice a day. <laughs> you're, you're never too old to need, too old to need your mommy or your daddy. And I, I'm just so grateful that um, they're here and um, that we have this incredible friendship now, but still respect because as much as I try to remind my teenagers about this, listen, the parents are the parents, kids are the kids. There's a pecking order here, stay in your lane. Um, but I, I just remember, and I have these great pictures of me as a really little girl. Um, when my dad was stationed back at West Point, he went back actually to help to coach football. He was the plebe, the freshman coach from 1974 to 1977, one of them. And there's these awesome pictures my mom has of me in his sweatshirt, uh, which went from my shoulders down to my ankles, <laughs> his big guy, uh, at, at his peak before he started to shrink, he was six, six and a half. And especially back in that day, I mean, that was massive. Right. And so his, I would just swim in his sweatshirt and be waiting for him to walk in the door, um, with a football in my hand. And then I'd run out to him and I don't, I don't know, just see, this is when I get choked up is when I talk about my parents, but just such an incredible, uh, bond. And, and I do think it, it was cemented very early on, um, with all the moving we had to do. And when you are kind of a nomad and you, and you don't have a place to call home um, because of the military, and I wouldn't change a thing, but what you have is each other. And so I have two younger brothers and so it's the five of us and we are so close, but in particular, the three of us are close with our parents and my dad, I think I, I go back to feeling um, like he was so strong and just protected me and always had my back in, in every way, but then also really challenged me and pushed me and believed in me and pushed me when I didn't want him to certainly, especially when you're a young kid and you're a teenager. Um, and so it was a lot of tough love, but the love part was key. And he always came back around. And we had a lot of fun rituals when I was a little girl at night, certain things we'd say and do everything was always a competition. We'd have a, um, a, uh, bedroom inspection every Saturday morning, just like his days at West Point. And he'd knock twice and we'd have to salute. And he'd say, are you prepared for inspection? Of course you say yes, sir. And he marches in there and every infraction was 10 pushups. Oy. Um, yeah, I always say that I, I was jacked as a young girl. I had great arms because I had a lot of bedroom <laughs> infractions from the moment I was like four years old. Um, but there was so much love with the respect and the discipline. And I grew quickly to respect that. Um, and I think it's, it's quite often there's this, image or the stereotype of military men and just so rigid and not warm and loving. And I just had the exact opposite experience. But when he walked in a room, especially at six, six and a half, 235 pounds, as my father, we stood at attention, you don't mess around, but he never yelled. He was just super calm. So anyway, I'm getting into too much, but I, that love and respect that my father gave me and gives me is absolutely priceless. I think there is something special between a father and a daughter, um, very different, and mothers and sons. And I have a son and two daughters. So I kind of have, you know, feel all oh, of it. Yeah. Um, but man, um, my dad is my guy and uh, no one will ever replace him. You don't know how much this is music to my ears. Uh, 
so let me now share my story. So I, we have two two kids. One is 14, one is 11. The, the, the 14 year old is the daughter. So she's now knee deep into the adolescence and the teenage stuff. And about two years ago, I went through a little uh, mini, uh, not, I mean, depression would be a big word, but I, I felt this deep existential blueness, if, if I can put it that way, because I realized that she had uh, passed the doll playing stage. So yeah. that, you know, she was my little girl, but now there were clear markers, physiolog I mean, morphologically, she didn't look as much of a little girl. And so, and in her, be you know, be behavioral patterns, the dolls that we used to play with together, and we've even taped some of our play sessions, she was no longer interested in. And I had to kind of uh, mourn the loss of that cognitive developmental stage, uh, akin to how you know, you mourn the loss of, of, I mean, God forbid, of a death, but there was the death of her very, very young childhood, right? And she was moving to another stage. And I remember when she realized that I was feeling those uh, those moments of sadness, she actually insisted that we play with each other with the dolls, but that no actually, sorry? No way, she felt that. Yeah, but here's the thing, You're. I, I think you'll appreciate this. It actually made me more sad because I realized that it was forced. It was terribly sensitive of her, what she was trying to do. She was trying to assuage my feelings by saying, no, no, I'm still your little girl. I still want to play. But I could clearly see that she had passed that developmental stage. So when I hear you speak about your dad in a manner that still the dynamic is still you're his little girl, it gives me great hope because I want, I pray that when my daughter is your age and is as accomplished as you are, that she'll be speaking about me in that way, because otherwise life would be unbearable if I thought that, you know, she's off, she flies the coop and that's yeah. it. Right. You know, but I just hearing that story, you have nothing to worry about. The fact that <laughs> she is so sensitive and empathetic to um, at a young age to see and feel what you're going through with this. That's beautiful. And you can't teach that. So yeah. you did something right there. Number one, Thank number you. two, one thing my dad to this day, he'll say it about once a week. And he says it in emails and text messages. And when we say, I love you, he will tack on what he's been saying for 51 years. Me more. He said, no, we don't have that one. He's, he calls me his little 11 month old sagey. Because oh. when I was 11 months old, apparently, listen, I was um, super athletic walking at a very young age. <laughs> Didn't turn out so well as far as the athletic <laughs> side. But um, I mean, running to him at 11 months old when he would come home from work. And so that's what he and then you run in his arms, and you know, the, 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 the dad thing, what you guys do and you throw us up in the air. And so he literally still will say my little 11 month old Seiji. And then I'm like, dad, stop, because now I'm old and I cry all the time. Um, so it's it's something that is to me the most important relationship in a young girl's life. Um, and it certainly continues into adulthood. And I always implore uh, guys, friends of mine with daughters, um, that is everything. Don't screw it up. Meaning don't think it's all just gonna happen. You have to go make that effort and it is everything and it is lasting and it affects almost every decision they make in life. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll say one last thing about this and then we can move on to other topics. Uh, so I just came back from Hungary where I spoke at a summit called the Budapest Demographic Summit. Uh, 
talking about the importance of families trying to increase fertility rates in Western countries because mm. many of the Western countries don't even have a are not even meeting the replacement rate. To, uh, you know, in other words, meaning that more people are dying than right. kids being created. And so, in that, in in my keynote address, I was talking about some of the evolutionary reasons why family dynamics exist in the way that they do and so on. And so to our conversation about the importance of fathers, I cited some work, which I, I hope you'll find interesting. So it turns out that father presence or father absence in a home affects the, the, the timing of when a girl gets her first menses, uh, mm-hmm. which the fancy term is menarche or in French, it's menage. So that you know, some girls will get it at 11, some girls will get it at 13. And an environmental predictor of when that time happens is if the father is absent, then uh, girls go into their reproductive window earlier. And oh, so wow. even at this physiological level, so ne- never mind the emotional level and the support and all of the things that we would expect affect the development of children in general and daughters in particular, but something as intimate and as physiological as the timing of their menstrual cycle is determined in part by the presence or absence of a father. I have never heard that. And that is fascinating. And I was 15. Is that right? Well, there you go. It supports He was super present. It delayed it uh, as far as you could take it. Which good. Listen, you guys have no idea, right? (laughs) Delay it as long as possible. Right. I hear you. That's fascinating. All right. So let's get now into uh, ESPN. You're on Jay Cutler's podcast. You say, I think I saw three things, but maybe there are more. Take us through that story and the trajectory that happened after. No, you, you take me through it. Oh gosh. Which part, which parts stood out to you? Okay. So I, I just, cause I wanted to know what were the controversial things that got you into trouble and from my understanding having just quickly perused through through the material i didn't listen to the actual podcast it was number one it was your positions on you know questioning some of the covid vaccine mandates number two critiquing the fact that uh women were scantily clad i couldn't tell whether that was a general statement or it, it applied specifically to female sports broadcasters and then number three you took issue with Barack Obama calling himself a black man when he he had a you know a white parent and a black parent, not unlike how your reality is. Are those the three main issues that got you into quote hot water? Yes, they are. Uh, let me start with the last one because um, I do, and I'll say this to the end. And as a journalist for twenty eight years, context matters, and the conversation surrounding that matters. Um, I think that's the one that bothers me the most that was taken out of context because most people don't have time or don't take the time from the journalistic side, really, as far as how it was handled when it all went down two years ago to really listen um, instead of just clicking on, you know, a link that's a 18 second soundbite, the conversation surrounding it matters. Um, and with that, it, 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 I was actually telling a story about when I was on The View uh, in 2014 on ABC with Barbara Walters uh, and Whoopi Goldberg and the other two co-hosts, Sherry Shepard and Jenny McCarthy, who they, they were all lovely, really, really kind to me um, and fun. Uh, and Barbara really took issue with the fact that I called myself biracial. 
And why not black is what she said. So this is the complete story I told on Jay Cutler, but what came out is that Sage was criticizing Barack Obama. Um, it wasn't really the case. I guess it could be perceived that way. But when Barbara said, um, well, the president calls himself black, why, why don't you? Um, and I said, well, congratulations to the president. He can do what he wants. Again, it's 2014, he was president. And I said, I think it's fascinating that, um, you know, his black father was not there his white mother and his white grandmother raised him. I mean, Barack Obama wrote a book about this in the absence of his father. So this was not breaking news, but to me, it was interesting that he uh, didn't want to at all identify with half of who he is as a biracial man. That was my take on, it. I said, you do you. For me, it does matter. And I always say the joke and I always will. I'm like, I'm pretty sure my white mom was there the day I was born. And I think that she matters as much as my black dad. So that's what it was. It was really that simple. And I'll always say that I would love someday. That's one of my dreams is to be able to have a conversation with Barack Obama and any um, public facing biracial person, because I think it is something that it's a thing now. And if you don't say I'm black, then you're a racist or you hate your race or you hate black people. The things that I get is, oh, gosh, she hates her black father. It's all fake. Look at what she said about Obama. So listen, that goes back to us saying you got to let go of people hating you. Um, or what they think of you. We pay attention to a certain extent because we're human, but I know what I said. Most importantly, I know how I feel and how I treat others regardless of race. And I'm really super proud um, that I have the most loving, diverse family um, where my white family loves me as much as my black family. I'm close to everyone. And I love seeing our big family picture where you don't know who goes with whom because there's all different colors and mixes and that's America to me. So I just think it's important for me to identify with all of what I am. That's literally what I am, half of each. Uh, if Barack Obama doesn't choose to, that's him. When I'm asked the question, I gave an answer. So that was, that was the gist of it. And I will um, not apologize for how I choose to uh, be proud of all of me. And so as a result of you making those statements that proved to be, you know, contentious for the, uh, the ESPN overlords, they suspended you at that point? Is that, is that what yes. happened? Yes. And initially it was more because um, of what I said about my employer at the time, which was um, that I, and I struggled with it. I had literally just come from getting the vaccine that I didn't want to get. Um, and I had come through and, and so people look at, at the time you can see in the video with the podcast, I had a bandaid on my shoulder and I, they were like, oh, that's a prop. And it wasn't, I literally sprinted from this grocery store parking lot where I got the shot at the pharmacy and, and I was late because I wasn't, I almost didn't get the shot. I was going to potentially, I was going to lose my job over it. I felt so strongly because this is two years ago and we didn't know enough in my opinion. I just wanted to wait. Yeah. Um, and so I sprinted back in and flipped up the laptop and we started talking and, uh, so I held back a lot on my opinions at that moment. And I just said, I think it's sick and scary for companies to force people to do something to their bodies, period. Um, but I said, but I, I work for a global company, Disney, so I wasn't terribly surprised. And companies had that right to force people to do that. Um, most importantly, I complied. I complied with the mandate. Uh, against my will, but I complied and I had to make that decision for myself because I, I not only love my job, but I needed my job. Um, and so I, I, that was the thing I can share an opinion um, while following the rules. Um, 
And was there something, I mean, yes, you had just gotten the job and therefore that's top of mind awareness at the moment, yeah. but what, what was there sort of a trajectory that you were going through that led to the tipping point of this is it, I'm no longer modulating my speech and I'm going to let it all hang out or, you know, or had you not even been aware of some of these issues and you kind of found your voice, I mean, what I mean by your voice in terms of going against some of the established orthodoxy that the company would expect of you to no i i didn't think i had done anything wrong right because i followed the rules and i got the shot i did what i had to do on the very last day possible to be fully vaccinated by september 30th 2021 that was the mandate um so this was whatever 14 days prior you needed two weeks right so it's like exactly two years ago so no i didn't think i didn't i'd done anything wrong um it's interesting because it was really one of the first times i had i had mentioned the fact that i'd gotten divorced and um, so I was more concerned about that, like, oh, gosh, I, I re revealed something very personal. Um, and I didn't know how that would go over if I'd be, you know, criticized for that as a Catholic, like, I, I was more concerned about that than my opinion on a, a mandate that I complied with. Um, and then obviously, my experience as a biracial woman, um, that's my experience, that's my story. So what's wrong with me sharing my my story everyone else can and actually everyone else um for years and years and especially the last two years has been very vocal uh, at my former place of work about things that have nothing to do with themselves or sports um people are going on you know our programming nba shows and, and emotional over the roe versus wade decision on, an, on a sports show on our platform so to me i'm talking about my own personal experiences on a day off on someone else's platform um, I was not concerned at all. I was pretty shocked. I, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a concerted effort. Like I'm going to stand up to this today. Um, it was a question that was asked and, uh, I answered him and I answered him honestly. Wow. Uh, are you familiar with Jonathan Isaac? Do you know who that is? I know Jonathan quite well. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. So he, he came on my show, uh, I think it was about a year ago and, uh, you know, I thought just what a lovely, courageous it's young wonderful. man. And uh, we, we, I, I used to be before he came on my show, I would post clips of me doing some basketball moves and, you know, getting a three pointer. And I'd say, Jonathan, are you ready? Because I'm going to kick your butt. So when he came on, my, of course, I wouldn't even get one point on him. He's seven foot tall and I'm <laughs> right. hardly that. And uh, I just thought he was so charming, so lovely, so courageous that he says, I don't yeah. care. I'm not going to abide by things. So. The reason I'm setting it, setting up the question this way, what then explains the fact that so many athletes who, to our earlier point of, you know, being these mythical heroes that we admire, why are so many of them so cowardly when it comes to enunciating their positions? What is the disconnect between me being able to step on the field in front of 100,000 people and be a hero, but then when you ask me to comment about something that I should be able to defend one way or another, I turn into a completely castrated moron? <laughs> castrated moron. I love it. Um, it's fear. Yeah. It's fear. And it is interesting because you look at, many of these people you know we society does as like you said as heroic in many ways and 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 most importantly maybe our pillar of strength physically and mentally so then to see them go silent i know so many of these top big name athletes who did not want to take the shot period um and i don't know that all of them did even though that might seem that way uh but no one said anything about it except who Aaron Rodgers and Kyrie Irving. 
Um, I admire them. I know them both. I admire them so much for that courage because it, it, unfortunately, it does take courage to give your opinion on things like this right now, whether people agree or not, that's not what this is. It's about having respect for everybody's opinion, period, especially if they're not telling you what to do with your body or your opinion. You keep yours, I'll keep mine. You do you. That's what we always say, right? Until all of a sudden we're forced not to. Um, I Listen, I've said it before. I feel like I'm, I, I'm a great example as to why people do stay silent because there are repercussions when you speak up and when you're your true self. Um, there's a lot of money on the line. I experienced that part, but with those athletes, it's a hundredfold, right? I mean, it's tens of millions of dollars. That's why when you look back at what Kyrie Irving did, people can say what they want about Kyrie. I understand he's controversial, he's different, whatever. Um, but Kyrie, in this moment with this example, uh, chose to say no. My $34 million annual contract um, comes secondary to me standing up for what I believe in and what I believe is best for my body. Right. Uh, and, and then pointing out the hypocrisies of the mandates throughout the sports world. Um, and so I admire them for doing it anyway and the flack that they took. And now it's interesting because a year, two years later, the tide has certainly turned and we have learned more and more. So regardless of anyone's opinion, um, I, that's the thing that makes me sick is when you're, you're attacked for just being you. When right. it, That's what everyone's preaching right now, right? right? Be true to yourselves and it doesn't matter whether it's race, gender, all the different gender things that are out there now. I mean, let's just be consistent. To me, it begins and ends with diversity of thought. And that's what I hope my platform can be going forward, Gad, is because diversity of thought, like it's easy for us to say, no, 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 we must accept, accept people of all different colors and races and religions and genders. That That's a given now. We have departments that DEI, massive departments throughout every industry in corporate America now, big or small, DEI and equality, and to me, we're forgetting the most important thing. It begins with diversity of thought because then if I respect your thought process, then then it's just, I respect how you choose to identify. I respect how you choose this and that. We are making it so much more difficult. And what we're doing is completely dividing. And yes, in the sports world, um, it is so prevalent, but I've had so many of those guys whisper to me. Some of the biggest, and one of them in particular came up to me uh, years ago at a, a big sporting event. I don't want to say it because it might reveal who he is. Um, and he's like, I'm watching what's going on, girl. And he's like, I got you. I got you. And I'm like, do you? Because if you right. did, you would not even agree. Exactly. You wouldn't do it behind the shadows. Right. And 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 this is as big of a person. Like you, you would just say, listen, guys, stop. Stand down. Why are we attacking this woman, this person, for being true to herself, right? Why? But instead, they stay silent. And it is interesting to me because these are men for the most part. So I don't know. I guess I grew up with a real man <laughs> in my household with my dad who wasn't afraid to do so, to speak his mind kindly and to defend others when it wasn't even popular. And I would like to see real men stand up and women because we are as strong right and as important and as brilliant and vocal to stand up and really um just condemn the hatred that is spewed when you choose to just be yourself it is so hypocritical of what is being preached out there today right well uh, by the way i've had many uh free thinkers on my show and many of them actually were 
women. Yeonmi Park, who, who was a North uh, Korean defector, Ayan Hersey Ali, who escaped the brutality of some of the genital female genital mutilation in Islam. And so uh, certainly women are holding their end of the bargain when it comes to some of these issues. But, but but I'll say this, what they're not doing right now is holding up their end of the bargain with the transgender and sports <laughs> issues. And the True. silence with that has broken my heart. I've been part of trying to, with ESPNW had a wonderful program and, and bringing women together at a summit every year. And I mean, women from across the world, the, the Middle East, where they're not allowed to go be female sports journalists, we'd bring them in and mentor them. And it was hear me roar and stand tall and fight for equality with, with wages and salaries and all the things that you see throughout the sports world with women now. And every last one of them is silent. Yeah, literally. I'm blown away at the silence from women with all that we've done and fought for for 50 plus years now with Title IX. And the biggest names are silent. And that's what breaks my heart. I can separate. This is nothing against the transgender community because we need to figure that out. They are important. And we need to not take away, not or, right? But and we need to not take away from what we have fought so hard for as women and so many men who have fought for us along the way. The majority of the people who helped me along the way, 99.9% of them have been men who wanted me to succeed despite what society wants us to believe. So I am beyond disappointed and I'm trying to watch my language <laughs> with how silent um, women have been because I feel if we banded together and I've asked for this on social media, who am I, right? I don't know, but I just have this little platform and people have watched me talk about sports and uplift women for all these years. Like if we came together, this would change on every level. And Indeed. for some reason we are silent. So I do feel that remaining silent, this is, it's on us if we continue to do that. I mean, I, I know exactly what you're speaking of because no industry is more woke than academia. That's where all the woke ideas originate from. And there isn't a greater density of uh, cowardly, silent types more than there is in academia. So I can completely empathize with what you're saying. Uh, two more questions because I want to be very mindful of your time. I could keep you here for another five hours. I know. I want to talk to you forever. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. But we'll 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 do it again, I'm sure. Uh so I want to just cover one more question on wokeness. And then if we have time, uh, maybe we'll talk about happiness. It'll be a very short conversation. We'll need time for that. That's that's important. Yes. Okay. So question one, this is coming. So one of the things that I teach is consumer behavior. I'm a professor of marketing uh, as my official title. Uh, and so one of the first principles you learn in marketing is segmenting and targeting the market, right? You segment the market into different niches and then you target each of those niches in different ways because these consumers in each of these niches have different needs, different preferences and so on. So now let's take the sports industry. Most of the people that you stereotypically think of that are consumers of sports are probably going to be people who are not very woke. Like So think about the Budweiser thing with Dylan Mulvaney, right? You're creating a marketing strategy for 0.01% of the population when most of your drinkers of Bud Budweiser don't really care about this issue of transgender thing one way or the other. It's not that they're transphobic. They, it's just not on their radar. So what explains the disconnect between the fact that most athletes I'm almost willing to bet are not as woke as we'd like to think. Most of the fans are not very woke. And yet the 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 suits are the ones who are pushing the wokeness. Is there some way to 
you know, uh, build a bridge for that incongruity? I don't know, because the, the thing is, I think a lot of the people at the top making those decisions actually aren't as woke as we're led <laughs> to believe, but there's societal pressures. Um, listen, I have been blown away and I witnessed it for 16 years where I last worked. Um, and I think that's probably the best focus because before that there, we didn't, the word woke really didn't exist. I feel like until maybe eight, 10 years ago. Um, but I, I feel like these companies are making massive decisions based on what happens on Twitter or X and amazing media in general. And I've seen it and I've, I have experienced it. And then they're very reactive, right? And oh gosh, if we don't do this and we won't look like we're accepting or tolerant and let's add another color to the rainbow and another letter and a plus sign and whatever else. And I think at the end of the day, listen, there's always going to be extremes and people, you know, even sadly, when you say, let's end racism, guess what? That's never going to happen because they're human beings and there's, there's, it's just not going to happen. It can, can we address it more? Absolutely. Should all of us be playing our part? Heck yeah. And holding others accountable and companies accountable. Yes. But to go to this extreme, I don't understand. I also think it's just stupid based on business models. At the end of the day, Michael Jordan said it perfectly back in the 1980s. Republicans right? have running shoes or whatever the expression. Republicans right? buy sneakers. That's too. It. <laughs> and it's so simple. And it doesn't actually matter if it's Republican or Democrat. That was the example that he gave when he was getting criticized for, well, you're not saying enough. Tiger Woods was criticized for not, you know, being woke enough in many ways, even though I don't think that phrase was used at the time. At the end of the day, I think if you are any television network, you want everybody watching your shows, don't you? You don't want just one side or the other, whether it's Bud Budweiser, whether it's a type of clothing brand, no matter what it is, I want everyone to absorb, to buy my product because I make more money that way, don't I? Right. So why do you choose anything, choose a side? And sadly, what I think it does, and it's just marketing and sales, but what it actually does is it divides further. And that's what breaks my heart because you can see it and you can feel it. And you felt it a lot the last three years in particular. I think the combination of um, COVID and the lockdowns and just the fallout from it, as well as what happened with George Floyd and then defunding the police and all of these things. I think that's my, where my heartbreak lies the most based on my upbringing where it really wasn't a color thing. It was just accepting everybody. We all knew that, hey, I'm the new kid this year, next year it's that kid. And you just are, it was a beautifully diverse upbringing. That's all I knew. Um, but now what this has done, it's, it has divided more. The conversations I have with my kids and I have um, a 21 year old, a 19 year old, two in college at High Point University, which by the way, amazing as far as really accepting kids and their diverse opinions and allowing conversation. I can't even tell you, I'm so grateful for that place. So two there, and then a third is a senior in high school here. Um, and the conversations that they have in classes, um, it's it's really fascinating what, what is being taught. And I just keep saying to them, listen, if you stay silent, going back to our prior topic, if you stay silent about that, um, then that's on you. But if you do it in a kind way, like let's encourage the discussion and right. teachers, that's your job. You owe that without giving your opinion on some of these controversial topics. But to me, it's just overall, whether you look at the university level um, or, you know, there's certain places I would not allow my children to go because of that. And that's business related as well, right? So why choose? Why divide? What it ends up doing 
is completely what they're preaching against. Right. I don't, yeah. I don't know the why. I wish I were smart enough to, to have that answer. But I do know that if it continues down this path, um, it's just going to continue to get worse. And my parents, who've been married for 52 years as an wow. interracial couple, right? Getting married off of the civil rights era, where it was a, a, a brutal decision. My mom's family disowned her because she was marrying a black man. Like for their perspective, for them to say, my goodness, we haven't felt this in any aspect of our lives since then that says something we are in a deep hole here and i think if we don't like face it and have these conversations thanks to you then it's just going to get worse and i'm just not going to be silent about it anymore though because i feel like i'm complicit if i don't talk about it beautifully said last question and i know that it deserves a lot more time than what we have but notwithstanding some of the personal uh, tribulations that you face you know you 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 mentioned earlier that you got divorced that's has to be painful. I know that your father has been ill. That's a very difficult situation to go through. You went through your trials and tribulations with ESPN. Yet from the little that I know of you so far, you have this radiant positive aura. You have this smile. So what is the secret to happiness? And the guy who's asking it is the one who wrote the book with the subtitle, Eight Secrets. So teach me, Guru. How is oh, it that you're so happy? Oh. First of all, can you please send me a book? I'll pay for it. Will you autograph it for me? <laughs> I will. It's done. That I just love it. And I think um, not having read it book, read your book yet, um, but knowing the premise of it, it is a choice. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have bad days and down times and be sad because I have been so sad um, and heartbroken and devastated over the last, I'd say, four years. Um, with work and with uh, personal life and tough decisions, right? Um, and watching my father's battle with two cancers and it's just so much, right? Things are a lot bigger than what I've been through with my little work thing. Um, first and foremost, my faith has never been stronger. And uh, I was raised Catholic and, you know, you go through what you're supposed to go through and you go to mass every Sunday and you sit and you stand and you kneel and you say the Our Father and then you go on and you come back next week. And now it's just a lot bigger than that because at the times when I've been absolutely broken and scared and feeling like um, not only was I hated by the world, God was mad at me too for personal decisions with you know the marriage. And I just, I asked for help and I got that. This is a story for another day. It's really deep, um, but I got some very clear answers um, from God that I think I probably was receiving before, but was maybe not willing to open my eyes enough to see. So for me, it is very much faith-based. And secondly, I just live in gratitude, um, which is related to the faith, I think, but it's more so based on how my parents raised me, um, raised the three of us. And uh, I am just so blessed and so fortunate in so many ways. How many kids, um, you know, we ask kids all the time in, in kindergarten and on up, what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, I got asked that question. And you know the answer from when I was 11 years old. And I got to do it. No one gave it to me. I worked my ass off for it. By the way, I have a sign over there that says, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. So forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's my favorite sign right now. I keep trying to be better. Sorry, mom. Um, but I worked my butt off for this. No one gave me anything. Um, and during that time, like I did it. I fought through those fears with the help of a lot of other people, right? As well. It, it, it certainly is a village. But I got to live this dream at the highest level. 
Um, and so is yes, I was beaten up along the way, but there's so much more good than bad. The people in my life because of it are incredible. So I just feel like, um, I, I do feel like happiness is a choice. Um, and you can choose to focus on the good or the bad. You don't ignore the bad. Um, because I think that makes you more grateful for the good, but you know, it's funny with all this blowing up. I mean, I'd never, I'd never, uh, talk to an attorney really in my life about anything until I decided to stand up for myself with, with my employer. Um, so when I say scared to death, <laughs> you have no idea, especially as the sole provider, hundred percent for my entire family. Wow. Um, well, you're going to have next year. I'm gonna have three kids in college at once. Right. Yikes. Like, <laughs> Yikes. Um, but it's, and I'm sorry, it's such an emotional topic and I'm so glad that you can feel, um, my happiness because I am, even though I literally don't know what tomorrow holds. I, I don't know what is next career wise. I know what I want. Um, but I'm, I have parents who love me. I have a very small, tight, incredible circle of friends. That circle has gotten smaller and smaller lately for sure, which was a tough process, but a, a much needed one. Um, I have my faith in God and others and humanity in general. I think there's so much more good in the world than we hear about these days. And that's kind of my mission is to point that out with this little platform I might have for who knows how long, and then to live it, not be hypocritical. So, um, and by the last thing, again, I have three babies. They're not babies, right? <laughs> but I have three kiddos who are watching the way that I handle things. And trust me, they see me melt down. They see me, you know, not be the best mom at times, um, not of the most patience, um, not say the right thing, be a hothead at times for sure, but they know where my heart is. Um, and I just, I hope that others can, can try to remember that when dealing with people, whether it's like this on social media or at the grocery store, you know, everybody's dealing with something. And if we lead with kindness, uh, maybe more people can feel happy. I just feel fortunate. Well, if I can end it on the following note, you exude grace, kindness, positivity, you're all around lovely, and it's been such a delight talking to you. Please stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline uh, officially, but please come back anytime. Best of I, luck. I wish I, you got me all choked up talking about such happy things. <laughs> honestly, I say to my kids since I, they were little, I'm like, no, I cry happy tears because I do. So this is, this is my once a day happy tears. So can you feel my virtual hug? Can I do this in person next well, time. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to meet you in person. You, you truly are delightful. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Crime. <laughs> <laughs>